This morning's reading comes from Mark 12, verses 13 through 17, and then 41 through 44. Later, they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me once again this morning? Father, we are grateful for your word. We pray that this morning you would, you would use it to pierce confusion and bring clarity. Use it to pierce pride and bring humility. You put, uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to, to be more reliant on you and your spirit as a result of your word this morning. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So I'm usually pretty comfortable making fun of myself, laughing at myself. You know, self-deprecating remarks come pretty naturally. This morning I feel like I have to start by patting myself on the back a little bit. You know, tooting my own horn. Because I am a very generous man. When I look at this past week, I gave away hundreds of dollars. Pretty generous, right? I gave away small amounts of money to local restaurants. Hartzell's, good ice cream, Indian buffet, ate too much. I gave away money to the bank, pay mortgage and student loans. I gave away money to the glass repair place to repair my son's broken windshield after I left the hood opened on him and he drove down the highway and had the hood fly up and smash his windshield. Good parenting moment. (laughs) I gave away money to, well, I got a letter from the IRS this week telling me that I needed to give them $500 more because I, had made them, because I hadn't given them enough in April. It's a mistake. I'm not giving them any more money. But I give away lots of money, right? That's probably not what you thought you were going to hear this morning about giving. You probably expected you were going to hear about charitable giving, about giving voluntarily and giving cheerfully. 
not giving out of obligation and duty. But Jesus has something to say about both kinds of giving. And there's a tension that emerges from those portions of Mark chapter 12 that we read this morning. Before I jump into those two separate stories that come in Mark 12, uh, I want to take just a couple minutes to establish three kind of basic premises. Uh, They don't emerge from these texts, but they kind of stand as the backdrop behind which I think we have to understand these texts. Three kind of foundational truths when we think about how we relate to the resources that we have been given. Uh, The first truth, God owns everything, right? You don't see that in, in Mark chapter 12 necessarily, but it's one of the themes that I think runs throughout scripture. You see it all the way back in the beginning, in Genesis. God created everything. It's his creation. We get to use it, we get to live in it, but it's his. You can fast forward to the the Psalms, and Psalm 24 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world is his and all who live in it. Everything by right belongs to God. It's a theme that's picked up in the New Testament also, when various writers will say things such as, for from him and through him and to him are all things. It all finds its source and its goal in him. It's his. He owns it. That's the first premise we have to keep in mind as we think about Mark chapter 12 and what is happening there. The second premise is that we are appointed stewards of what God has given, of what God has created. That includes the earth. We're stewards of God's earth. That includes the gifts that he has given to us, whether it's talents or material gifts. We're stewards of them. They're not ours. We're to use them in a way that is responsible, in a way that brings glory to God, in a way that serves. They're not our gifts. They're not our talents. They're not our treasures. It's not our earth. We're stewards of them. We... We know what this is like. Sometimes we borrow something. So this week, after I smashed my son's windshield, I lent him my car. I expected that he was not going to treat my car like he treats his car, a rolling garbage can, right? He was to take better care of it because it was on loan to him. That's the same principle. What we have is on loan to us from God. We're stewards. The third premise God uses means to accomplish his purposes. I heard a bad joke a long time ago about a man who lived, say I've set the bar low, it's a bad joke, so you don't have to laugh, uh, about a man who lived on a floodplain near a river. And the river was rising, and the fire department came in their big truck and said, we got to get you out of here before it's too late, the floodwaters are coming. And the man said, no, I'm praying God's going to save me. He's going to keep me safe. Well, the floodwaters came, the water rose, and the man had to retreat to the second story of his house. 
And the fire department came in a boat this time and said, we have to get you out of here. Now is the time. And from his window, he said, nope, I'm praying. God is going to save me. The water kept rising. And the man had to retreat to his roof. And this time, the Coast Guard came in a helicopter and said, we have to get you out of here. And the man said, no, I'm praying to God. God will save me. And the waters kept rising, and he drowned. In heaven... The man said, I'm confused. I prayed, God, why didn't you save me? And God said, I sent you a truck, a boat, and a helicopter. What more did you want? That was polite laughter. Thank you. (laughs) But but that joke makes the point. God uses means to accomplish his his purposes. God uses means. When we pray for healing, sometimes God uses physicians to bring the healing. When we pray for protection, sometimes God intervenes and protects directly. Sometimes he uses police and fire departments to protect. When we pray for provision, sometimes God intervenes directly and provides. Sometimes he gives us a job and a paycheck to provide. And farmers and grocery stores to provide. Three premises. What's the plural of premise? Premises? Premises? Three foundational truths which serve as the backdrop behind which we're going to look at these stories in Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 13, a kind of familiar type of story unfolds. People are trying to catch Jesus, to trap him in an unwinnable kind of situation, an unwinnable kind of argument. Two different groups come to Jesus to pose a question. Should we pay the imperial tax to Rome or not? The Herodians are one of the groups. We only know very little about the Herodians. They appear in this verse and in one other verse and nowhere else in any of the ancient literature. From their name, we assume that they were somehow allied with Herod, who was the Roman puppet king in the region. They were probably pro-Rome and accommodating to Roman rule and Roman culture. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were kind of an ultra-conservative religious group who would be against any kind of accommodation to the surrounding Roman culture. So they wouldn't normally be kind of good friends, but having a common enemy in Jesus allied them. And they come to Jesus and they pose this seemingly impossible question to answer. Should we pay the imperial tax or no? It's impossible because no matter which side of the debate Jesus takes, someone will be angry with him. The people were opposed to paying this tax. They did it begrudgingly, except for the zealots. The zealots wouldn't even pay the tax at all. And in fact, you can read about a rebellion in Acts chapter 5 that a man named Judas led against this tax. It was a very unpopular tax. It was just reminding the people that they were under the thumb of Rome. So the people didn't like it. And if Jesus said, yes, pay the tax, he'd be seen to be siding with Israel's oppressors. But if he said no, then he was in danger of being charged with sedition. Or something similar. 
So it's a seemingly no-win situation, but of course, in Jesus' wisdom, he has the perfect answer. He says, someone here, give me a, a denarius. Denarius was a Roman coin, not a Jewish coin, a Roman coin that was about equivalent to one day's wages for a laborer. On one side of the denarius was a picture of Tiberius and the inscription Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. On the reverse side was a picture of Tiberius's mother, Olivia, with the inscription Pontif- Pontifex Maximus, high priest of the Roman state cult. The coin itself was offensive to the Jewish people. Smacking of idolatry. Jesus says, who here has a denarius? And someone from the crowd who is asking, posing this question, produces one for him. And he says famously, give back to Caesar or render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. It's a brilliant answer. When they produce the denarius, they're showing that they have in some ways benefited from Roman occupation, benefited from Roman. They're participating in this culture. They benefit from the roads, from the markets. From, and so give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But, does this seem difficult to you? It it does to me. Because if point one, premise one, is true, what doesn't belong to God? What would be left to give to Caesar if we give everything to God? Is is giving to the state their tax contradictory to giving to God what is due God? I don't think it is. Giving to the state, paying what is due in the form of taxes, is not contradictory to giving to God what is God's. In fact, when rightly understood, I think it is a form of giving to God what is God's. God has commanded obedience to magistrates, even to Caesars, and giving them what is due. The state accomplishes good on behalf of God. Premise three, the state, magistrates, emperors, presidents, legislatures, legislators, are means God uses to accomplish his purposes. To provide for our security, our well-being, our safety. The Westminster Confession of Faith states it like this. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained civil magistrates to be under him and over the people for his own glory and the public good. 
He has given them the power of the sword for the defense and encouragement of them that are good and for the punishment of evildoers. The state accomplishes good things. They maintain roads, though poorly sometimes, which we can travel to visit grandkids and mothers and fathers. Uh, They protect us with sheriffs and fire departments. They maintain and establish, though very imperfectly, justice, punishing evildoers. They do these things, and we give back what is due in taxes. That doesn't mean we have to be uncritical, and there are exceptions. We'll get to that in a minute. But story one. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and unto God what is God's. The fact that God owns everything does not relieve us of our obligations to pay to those who we owe. The second story, a very different kind of story, right? There's no trap here. This comes at the end of Mark chapter 12. And Jesus is sitting in the temple in the court of women which was accessible to all Jewish men and Jewish women. In the court, there was 13 trumpet-shaped collection boxes where people would come and make their gifts to the temple. The gifts for the temple could be used for any number of purposes, and it was a very kind of public display as you would drop your coin into these trumpet-shaped boxes. Jesus sees... Rich people come in and give lots of money. But what really catches his eye is this one poor widow who comes in with two copper coins and drops them in the collection box. Two copper coins. Those copper coins were Jewish currency, each worth a fraction of a penny. Together, about one one-hundredth of a denarius, about one one-hundredth of a day's wage. And Jesus says this is all she had to live on. Jesus observes this and observes the fact that she gives both her coins. She could have given one and held one back, right, for herself, but she gives both. And he makes the statement that she has given more than those who gave greater sums of money. It's a more significant gift, not because it was worth more, but because it cost more. Uh, the significance of the gift isn't in the size of the, gift, of the gift, but in the sacrifice that is required to give it, to make it. It is a true principle that we ought to give sacrificially. But I don't know that's the principle we're supposed to take from this story. Is Jesus holding up this widow as a model that we should all follow? Of giving everything we have to live on? I really don't think so. There is no note of 
praise in this story. He doesn't tell the disciples, look at that widow and her devoutness and her devotion. Look at that widow and do as she did. You just don't see that. Frankly, so much of what you take from this story depends on the tone of voice in which you read it. Is he praising and commending the widow? No, I don't think so. I think the story should be read with a note of pity towards the widow and maybe mixed with a little bit of anger towards the religious system that would take her last two coins to live on. Put this story in the context of the verses and the chapters that surround the story. In chapter 11 of Mark, Jesus has that triumphal entry. And after he enters Jerusalem on the back of a donkey with crowds, hail, crowds hailing him, he goes to the temple and he overturns the tables. And he says, this temple supposed to be a house of prayer, but it's become a den of robbers. Jesus isn't in a good mood in the temple. The verse immediately preceding the story of the widow and her two mites, Jesus warns against the scribes who devour the widows in their homes. The next time you hear the word widow is this story. And what comes right after this story? They walk out of the temple and the disciples say, look at this beautiful building. And Jesus says, I'm tearing it all down. It's going to be destroyed. Jesus is angry. Angry at this religious system that instead of supporting the widow is taking her last coins to live on. Jesus emphasizes that. It's all she had. It's all she had to live on. And they take it from her. The widow is a victim, and the religious establishment has become predator. One commentator said it like this. This corrupt religious system cost the widow her life. She's going to go home and die. Do you get the picture? Jesus isn't commending her. She's a victim. He's not proud of her. He's not making her an example of sacrificial giving. He's observing a corrupt system that is going to be destroyed under the leadership of those corrupt, condemned leaders. They're exploiting the most defenseless and impoverished. This is taking premise number one, to an extreme. And giving to God everything that's God's, but neglecting premise two and three. That he cares for us and uses means to do it. How had that widow come into those two pennies, those two mites? Did she earn them somehow? Or was it charitable giving? I don't know. We're not told. But I'm pretty sure God wanted her to use that to buy some bread. 
Imagine the widow at home later that night saying, give me this day my daily bread. And God in pity saying, I gave you two cents to buy bread. And they stole it from you. I I know this isn't how we normally read this passage. But I can't escape how I see this. Both of these stories have a warning. A warning of good, God-established institutions going too far, taking too much, of overstepping their God-given mandates. In the first story, where Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and under God what is God's, Holding that coin, that meant don't give to Caesar when he demands your worship. Don't give to Caesar when he demands your veneration. But give him your money, you owe it to him. But don't give when he oversteps. This is a lesson the the disciples learned well. Oh, they paid their taxes. But when the establishment said, don't teach, don't preach Jesus, they said, oh no, we've learned to obey God and not man. And when Rome said, you have to worship, you have to worship at the temple establishment, at the imperial cult, the church said, no, we'll die first. We cannot give to Caesar what is God's in the form of worship. That is a challenge that has never gone away for believers. The state, in whatever form it takes, from monarchies to autocrats to even democracies, always, always tend to overstep and demand of people that which belongs to God alone. The sermon is about giving, right? And here I'm going to tell you, don't give. Don't give to the state. Don't give to a president. Don't give to anyone the kind of loyalty that only belongs to God. Don't give to anyone or anything, the kind of honor and reverence that belongs to God alone. Don't give to the state your hopes, your dreams. Place those in God and God alone. It is habitual for those in power to overreach. And we have to always be on guard against that about giving more than is owed. But it's not just the church that can, or the state that can overreach, it's also the church at times. The church can overstep when it demands giving exorbitantly without regard to life's obligations. I think the story of the widow is one of those instances You can rewind in Mark, go back to chapter 7, and there's another instance. Jesus again, in front of the religious leaders, says, you have a tremendous way of overturning God's laws for your traditions. 
God, through Moses, has said, honor your father and mother. And in part, that means take care of them in their old age. But you say, if a man takes the money that he was supposed to care for his parents and says, Corbin, or it's devoted to God, then he's relieved of his obligations to care for his parents because that money is now devoted to God. Jesus was not happy about that. It was an example of the church, the temple, overstepping. Of demanding that people give to God in a way way that negated their responsibility to care for others. It wasn't just the Jewish establishment in Jesus' day. The church overstepping and demanding too much of people was one of the sparks that set the fire of the Reformation ablaze. Yes, there was all kinds of theological sparks flying around, but Luther was dismayed that the church was building basilicas while oppressing the poorest of the poor, manipulating, deceiving, selling indulgences and the like. And it's still going on. It really is. I've sat in the home of people here who've praised up one side and down another tele-evangelists who I know are charlatans who rob and steal from the poor to buy jets and mansions. Someone in my family was swindled of vast sums of money by a leader in their church. I read a story, not real recently, but a while ago, of a man who worked at a five-star hotel and was found to have stolen $400,000 from the hotel. When the police apprehended him, he was living in a dingy apartment in the slums, had no car, had no money, and they asked, what did you do with all that money? He gave it to a tele-evangelist who promised to multiply the gift. It was seeds of faith. Another woman in the Chicago area recently gave over $340,000 to a church in Akron. The church was pursuing her. Give more, give more, give more. That's the way you get blessings. That's the way you enter the kingdom of God. She gave it all. She had dementia, and they were preying on her. Jesus is not happy with that. Multiply that hundreds and thousands of times that the people who give up their rent money, their grocery money. Is that what Jesus is calling us to in this story of the widows? Might No, it's, it's not. The story to me is confusing, but I know it's not. We're not supposed to give to the point where we then become a burden to others. The Apostle Paul makes that abundantly clear. So if it's a choice between giving and paying rent, 
I'm just going to tell you, please pay your rent. If it's a choice between giving and feeding your kids so that they have a lunch to go to school with, please make sure your kids have a lunch to go to school with. This is a horrible sermon on giving. (laughs) I get it. As believers, we are called to give in faith. We are called to give sacrificially. We are called to give generously. We are called to give in compassion and kindness to support the work of the church, to support the work of the kingdom, to support missions. We're also called to be wise. To be wise. Not to be duped. To know when good things are overextending and overreaching their God-appointed purposes. I have no better conclusion than that. So with that, I'll ask you to pray with me. Father, we are grateful. We're grateful to know that you are our Heavenly Father. That you care for us. That you want us to learn good and important lessons about faith and about trusting in you and about living in faith and giving sacrificially and being good stewards. We know also that you want to care for our very real needs. Father, we pray that those in this room that maybe are embarrassed by the the small amounts that they have to give would be encouraged that it's not the amount, it's not the amount that you count as significant. It's the heart, and it's the sacrifice. Father, we pray that those who give out of their abundance but haven't given to the point where it, they feel it, that they would be moved, that they would be moved to continue to give and to give sacrificially. But in all things, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom, wisdom to hear and to apply your word and to listen to your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.